The following audio is from our sermon series titled, The Whole Story, Genesis to Revelation. For more information about Harvest City Church, please visit our website at harvest.city. Hey guys, well, uh, welcome to Harvest City. You know, I'm glad that you're here this morning, and you know, I'm honored to have the opportunity to bring God's Word to you guys today. Um, yeah, one thing, just uh, another shout out to Scott. He already said it's his birthday, but just wanted to, you know, he, he does so much for our church as, uh, as the founding pastor. Um, there's so much that wouldn't happen if we didn't have him and his leadership, and it's, it's a privilege to lead alongside of him. And uh, so just make sure you, you tell him happy birthday today. Tell him something you appreciate about him. Um, he does so much for us. So we love you, brother. Um, so before we get into the word, let's, uh, let's pray. <clears throat> uh, Lord God, we're, we're thankful. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for your word, for it is good, for it is true, for it is powerful. Lord, help me to display that this morning. Um, help this word to be edifying to the people here. Help it equip us for works of service. Help us to bring it, um, help to bring us more into your likeness and to maturity and to behold you and to love you more through this word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are in a uh, series called The Whole Story. we got some cool banners back here. You see that? And we've uh, been walking through this all year. Last week, Mike, he brought us into the Passover and the Exodus. And now today we're jumping into Leviticus. So a, a little, actually not much of a jump in time. The events from there to now only occurred over a period of a month. Um, so not a whole lot, but there's a lot of that happened in that month of time. And, and I feel like I need to at least touch on some of the big things. So Mike's big point last week is, is God is a rescuer. His, uh, God's people, Israel, they were enslaved in Egypt for 430 years, which I can't, that's crazy. It's um, you would think God is not there, or if he's there, he doesn't, he doesn't love us, he's gone, he's forgot about us. But God does love his people, he's faithful to them, and he rescued them out of the oppressive uh, rule of Pharaoh. And so he, he leads them, them out of Israel, and that's kind of where we, we were left off last week. And then, uh, so things seem pretty good. Okay, so like we're, we're, we're free, finally, like it's just us again. But then things quickly turn uncertain. So Pharaoh's heart, which was unhardened by God to let them go, has now been rehardened by God. And he sends his army, he says, chase them. <laughs> go get them. And then the people of Israel, they're walking out and they're, they're stuck. In front of them is a massive body of water called the Red Sea. And then they see there's an army of people coming up. And they're just like, why didn't you just kill us back in slavery if we're just going to die right now? And so they, they lose trust in him. They lose confidence in, in, in God and, and doubt that he, he loves them. But the Lord is omniscient. He knew everything. He wanted to use this as an opportunity uh, so these people would fear him, would love him, would trust him more. And, and so through this, uh, Egypt comes. He, God tells his leader Moses, hey, stretch out your hand over the waters and they're going to part and you're going to pass through this massive body of water on dry ground. And it's like, what? How does that happen? No, one, that's never, ever happened. 
But God is faithful. He keeps his promises. And that's what happened. Moses stretched out his hand. The waters parted. The people passed through on dry ground. And then as, as the Egyptians, they, they, they come through to chase them. Israel, by the next morning, they get to the other side. Same thing. Moses stretched out his hand. Because God gave him the power to do so. The waters closed up. And the Egyptian army uh, is, is taken care of. Again, we see God is rescuing his people. But then uh, Israel, uh, even though they serve God who is, who that, like by what he's done, he totally loves them. He totally has the best for them. They quickly forget that. They find themselves in the wilderness. Hey, we don't have any food. Hey, we're starving to death. Why didn't, why didn't we just die maybe back at the, uh, in the sea and drown us there if we're just going to die right now? But then God continues being a rescuer. He um, he does miraculous things. He makes water come out of a rock. That's kind of cool. I've never seen that before. Uh, he makes bread fall from the sky. That's pretty cool. And so, like, he's doing all these things. Why? Because he loves his people. He cares for his people. He's made a covenant that he will be with, with them. And then God gave his people ten, ten commandments, ten laws that, hey, this is the way that you are to live. Now you know the difference between right and wrong. Um, and this quick summary of these, the first one is that, hey, I'm God, know that I am God. Second one, there's none other. Third thing, don't make any idols and worship them, whether it's an image of me or an image of any, anything else. Don't take my name in vain, saying it mindlessly without reverence. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Rest from your work on the seventh day as I did in creation. And then to honor, honor your parents, to not murder, to not commit adultery or have sex outside of the covenant of a male-female marriage, to not make false claims about others, and to not covet or crave someone's wife or their stuff. And so these, these, these commandments that, that he gave them, they were etched by the finger of God on two stone tablets. And Moses went down, he told Israel about about them, and these are really special things. And so, um, God made a, a, a big box, and to put those in so they'd be safe, they would travel with Israel uh, for all of time, especially when they didn't really have a, a home in, in Jerusalem. And then this box was overlaid in gold, it was really special. There was a, there was a covering called the mercy seat on it that was, uh, it was a solid a gold slab, and then it had two winged creatures on it with the body of a lion and, and wings and a face. It was there kind of weird, but kind of cool um, on it. And uh, between that spot, earlier, uh, God says to Moses, this is where I will meet with you. This is where I will dwell with you. We see God wants to be with his people. He wants to dwell with them. And he says, hey, I will meet with you here. And to be able to do that, it wasn't just a box out in the open. He says, hey, I, I I would also like a sanctuary or a tent, a big tent or tabernacle where you can meet with me. And then in the back of this, this sanctuary, so if you think of like this room, if there, there's like a curtain right here. There's like this back room right here, which is called the, the inner sanctuary or the holy of holies or the most holy place. That's where this box called the Ark of the Covenant was, where the... the um, the, the stone tablets or the testimony is sometimes called, where they were placed. And again, that's the place where God says, I will meet with you. 
All right. And then uh, after, after that was given, um, God gives the people other laws in, in addition to the, the ten uh, primary ones. Uh, really, there's, there's a ton. 613 laws were given throughout the Torah or the first five books uh, of the Bible. So there's, there's a lot of different um, instructions that he gives to his people. And then we, we see that there was the priesthood established, or essentially the leaders of the congregation uh, were ordained by God. And this was, uh, this was Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu. They were given authority to, by God to provide offerings from, uh, from the Lord for the cleansing of both their sins and the sins of the people of Israel according to the ways that he told them. And that's kind of where we pick up today in Leviticus chapter 10. We jump into the first ever tabernacle service. So like kind of the excitement that we had like four years ago. It's like, yeah, we got a public launch. Like there's probably some, some of that excitement in the air. But unfortunately, we'll see that things go wrong and they go really wrong and they go wrong quickly. And so uh, we're going to start reading from Leviticus 10 and the first three verses. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. At the heart of today's text, I believe the main thing God wants us to see is that because God is holy, we must be holy to live in harmony with him. I'll try to flesh this out today through three lessons, even though I didn't change on the, on the slide deck. I think there'll be four lessons, but last minute edits. Three lessons today. The first one is that God is holy and requires his people to be holy. So let's go back to that text. Again, we're at this first ever service, this newly constructed tabernacle or big tent where we can wor- the people can worship God. Uh, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, had just officially become priests along with their father. And here they get their first shot at leading people in worshiping him. They had one job and they royally messed it up. Now, uh, so going back to the text, verse 1 and 2, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire on it and laid incense on it and offered the unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And the fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. We see Nadab and Abihu messed up things so bad that it cost them their lives. The text says this happened after they offered an unauthorized fire before God, it's not clear exactly what this was. Uh, some translations say it was some sort of strange fire. And then in addition to offering this unauthorized fire, the context of the passage from verses 8 to 11 hints that they were probably drinking alcohol while they were doing it. And then looking at chapter 16, which we'll, we'll get to, it seems like they were trying to get into the most holy place, which we'll talk about later. There was, you're only supposed to go on at a very specific time, and there's only one person who could go in there. So we see other things that, that they, they should not have been doing. But you might be thinking, okay, so they might have, maybe they were a little drunk and, and maybe they made some poor decisions, um, but that seems like a pretty harsh punishment for, for mistakes that it seems like anybody could have made. 
But the text also shows us that they were not punished solely because of the fire they offered, but because it was something the Lord had not commanded them to do. At the root of their error was disobedience to God, doing something their way and not God's way. But you still might be thinking, okay, I get what they did was wrong, I disobeyed God, but it still seems kind of harsh. But this brings us to the topic of justice. We know that for a punishment to be just, it should fit uh, it should fit the severity of the crime and considering the people or peoples the crime was committed against. And so maybe here's an example to help flesh this out. So let's think about like a young teenager, someone who's, who's 13 years old, gets in an argument with his dad who says, hey, you're spending too much time on your phone, boom, punches him. What should the punishment be for this crime that was committed? Well, you can think of other things. Maybe it's, well, you're going to lose your phone for even longer, bud. <laughs> or, uh, hey, uh, sorry, your sports are taken away for, uh, for however long. Or, you know, taking away some, some sort of these, those things. But then let's say that this, this teenager goes on a very special school trip. And he gets to go to Washington, D.C. And he gets a chance to meet Joe Biden, President of the United States. And he even gets, goes up to him, shake his, shakes his hand. And instead of receiving the handshake, boom, slugs him. What then do you think the punishment should be? Should it, should it be the same as his disobedience to his father? Oh, you get to, sorry, you can't have your phone as long anymore because you, you punched the President of the United States. Probably not. Probably would be a little bit different. Now, why? Why, why is there a difference there? Well, because... The offense was committed against a much greater authority in society. So, I mean, at worst, like, this kid might have been just, like, shot on the spot by the president's security because, like, this guy, Joe Biden, is, is arguably the most powerful man in the whole world. His authority is above um, anybody else's. What, then, would be an appropriate punishment against the God of the universe who created all things and therefore has authority over everything and every person, especially every ruler and king and Joe Biden himself. Is it then still too harsh that Nadab and Abihu were consumed with fire and killed on the spot for offending him through their disobedience? We must say no. The Lord, according to his ultimate authority of the world, has delivered to the, dis the disobedient priests a just punishment that appropriately fits the crime. Now, saying that alone paints an unfair and incomplete picture of the Lord and that his authority is harsh like an oppressive tyrant. But in addition to God being the ultimate authority, we need to recognize that he is a holy authority. The definition of holy, like Scott was saying before, is to be set apart, especially in regards to moral and ethical purity. The, God, the idea is that God is set infinitely apart from everyone and everything else and all of the characteristics to which he possesses included his goodness, his wisdom, and his sense of justice. So we see that God is the ultimate authority who is to be followed, and he's also set apart in his holiness, and he should be regarded as such. Going back to our text from today, we're confronted with the problem that God is not always honored as the ultimate holy authority, even among those he points as leaders. Verse 3 says this, then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said, Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. 
Here the Lord displays how he expects his people to live in a way that makes him look as holy as he truly is to the watching world. We also see by his swift and severe punishment of Aaron's sons that he has no tolerance for being made to look anything other than how holy he is. The new priest's careless disobedience to the regulations the Lord set up for the tabernacle service marred God's holiness and jeopardized his reputation among not only the Israelites, but the surrounding nations. And if this were to continue and word spread, God's glory risked being defiled among the foreigners who might have been given this false idea that it doesn't matter what God's people do, if they follow, if they don't, oh, whatever. But the truth is that God does care how his people lives, how his people live, because they can live both in holy and unholy ways. Later in Leviticus, God tells Moses to relate to the Israelites, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. But how can God's people become holy? The Bible shows us to be holy, we need to be free from our sin. Or our rebellion against God was told us people to do or not to do. And how do we do this? From all the way back to the beginning of God's grand story, in Genesis, we see a need for blood sacrifices to take away sins. As God clothed Adam and Eve with animal skins to properly cover and protect them after they disobeyed him and ate the forbidden fruit. This pattern of offering animal sacrifices to God continued throughout the Old Testament. In the book of Leviticus, the way we were to be, uh, the way sin offerings were to be completed so that people could be forgiven of their sins becomes a little more explicit. So when people sinned, they, they knew generally what type of animal needed to be offered, how they needed to be offered, but it's likely that not all of God's people would have made the proper sacrifices every time for every sin. Therefore, the sins not properly atoned for or cleansed of would have remained and defiled the place where the Israelites stayed, including the sanctuary. To deal with this issue, God created the Day of Atonement. This Day of Atonement is the primary subject matter for our text today. Um, So let's, let's turn to Leviticus 16, and we'll read most of the chapter. says this the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron and when they drew near before when they drew near before the Lord and died so again that seems like they were trying to go into the inner sanctuary and the Lord said to Moses tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die for I will appear in a cloud over the mercy seat but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have linen undergarments on on his body and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear a linen turban. And these are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and and put them on. And then he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots of the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat to which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make an atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the, il- into the wilderness to Azazel. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself. 
and he shall take a censer full of coals uh, from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense, beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it with his finger on the side of the mercy seat on the east side, and in front of the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the, and the, the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting uh, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters, the, enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and makes atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall t- take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with its finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he had made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat and Aaron shall lay both his, both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. Then Aaron shall come into the tent of meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he went in the holy place, and he shall leave them there. And he shall bathe his body in water in a holy place and put on his garments and come out and offer his burnt offering and the burnt offerings for the people, and make atonement for himself and for the people. And the fat of the sin offering he shall burn on the altar, and he who lets the goat go to Azazel shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and afterward he may come into the camp. And the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, uh, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And he who burns them shall wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterward that he may come into the camp. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins." Doesn't just get you fired up to hear about animal sacrifices and rituals? Like, isn't everyone just heart just like stirring? Like, ah, yes, Lord, this is the word that I needed this morning. This is so good. Well, I'm glad you're here. So, uh, this passage picks up right where we left off in chapter 10 after the disobedience of Nadab and Abihu. Now that they're gone, Aaron is to be the priest and the leader in the Day of Atonement. Verse 2 says, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come in at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat is on the ark so that he may not die. 
We see Aaron was not to enter the Holy of Holies, that farthest room behind the curtain, where God was to appear where, uh, whenever he wanted. If he would, he would face some pretty severe consequences, actually the same ones that his sons faced. He knows this all too well. This is serious business, and the stakes were high. To begin the ceremony, Aaron was to enter the tabernacle court from the Israelite camp, along with the bull and the goats that he had taken from the tribe. Then he would take off his clothes, wash himself in the water, which was in a a basin. You step into this courtyard that was fenced around, and there was a basin, there was an altar, and then there was the tent of meeting. He'd wash himself there. After bathing, he would need to put on the right clothes. So he had these holy garments Um, all made out of linen. He had the undergarment, he had a coat, a sash, and a turban. And then the lots were cast for the goats, or essentially kind of like a dice roll. And Aaron, and we'll pick up at at verse 8, and Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one for the Lord, and the other for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering, but the goat on which this fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Uh, We see the goat was to be killed and burned as a sin offering, while the other was sent into the wilderness to Azazel. Now, who the heck is that? Scholars honestly don't know. Some hold that it's an unknown place or a demon, but most traditionally people think that that Azazel is a compound word in Hebrew containing the word ez, which means goat, or azel, which means going away. So if you put it all together, it's the goat that goes away, or traditionally known as the scapegoat. Regardless of the meaning, the idea is that one goat would be offered as a burnt sacrifice, the other was to present it alive, the sins put on it, and then it would be cast away. Then the blood sacrifices were to be made. First, the bull was killed to atone for the sins of Aaron and his family, so pretty personal. And then the one goat was used in offering for the sins of the whole congregation. We see God's contribution, continuing the pattern of the Old Testament pattern and using blood sacrifices of animals to purify his people, which should bring to mind again just how severe the crime of sin is. Picking up at verse 12, And he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil, and put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony, so that he does not die. So he needed to bring a censer, which is a container in which incense is burned and it's full of these coals that are on fire. And then he had to place, you know, sprinkle this incense on it and then it would create this big cloud. Now, now why was this needed? I don't really know. But I think it, it goes to this idea, and it might be hinting at this idea that, that God was so set apart or holy that if you step into the presence of the place that he was, it would totally destroy you. And so this cloud kind of created this, a little bit of separation there. So we couldn't get a true sight of God. While inside the inner sanctuary, Aaron needed to sprinkle seven times the blood of the slain animals on the mercy seat, which is that, again, that covering on top of the Ark of the Covenant where the the, um, Ten Commandments were. And uh, what's interesting is not only that the priests and the animals that needed to be purified during that's that's not only the priests and the sacrifice animals that needed to be purified during the ceremony but also the spaces and the objects in which they were made this included the inner sanctuary 
uh, the, the, the tent of meeting and the altar in the courtyard of which the animals, or on which the animals would be burned. And what this points to is just how pervasive sin is. It not only affects us personally, but it also affects everything around us, every location. Um, it, is, it infects everything. After that, we're picking up back in verse 21. Uh, after that, the scapegoat was prepared. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of the man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. We see here that the sins of people are taken far away from them by the substitutionary goat that is led by another Israelite man into the wilderness. And in the wilderness without nourishment or protection, along with the sins of the people, the goat will die. Then the final purifications are made. The bull and the goat bodies are to be burned on the altar in the courtyard. Then the animal remains all the way down to their excrement, it says, were taken outside of the Israelite camp to be burned. Finally, the man who led the goat out and the people who took the animal remains, they had to come back. They had to wash all their clothes. They had to wash their bodies. Anything that even had a hint or possibly touched these unholy things had to be purified. Likewise, Aaron comes back here. He removes his holy garments, he washes his body, he puts on his street clothes, and then he can go back into the camp. After the ceremony, the whole congregation was now free from their sins, restoring their purity and holiness before God. They can now dwell with God in fullness as both parties, and pu- as both parties are pure and holy. And so I naturally read this as someone who lives in America, I'm like, Sounds like a you know, party is going to happen after this. And maybe it did. I don't really know. But talking to Nell, who lived in Israel, she's just like, you know, the, the, the tone of the day is, is, is very somber. Um, you know, is kind of sorrowful in a way. So I don't know. Maybe there's mixed emotions to things. But it's like, hey, you know, this seems like a, you know, a concert celebration. But maybe that's not how it was. But anyway, uh, the, the, the sins of the people were, were cleansed. They were fully done, done away with after this ceremony. So this was good news. Unfortunately, there were still problems. Each year after the ceremony ends, normal life resumes. And what happens during normal life? People choose to live however they want. They'll disobey God and they will sin. And then we see the pervasive of this sin will spread across the whole camp, quickly infecting every person, place, and object within the camp. This angers God and makes more sac- and more sacrifices are required to atone for this sin so the people can be made holy once again and restore this unity with God. If I was an Israelite man, this would naturally bring about a great deal of anxiety for me, thinking, Lord, I try try as hard as I can to follow your law. I just can't do it. I fall short every day. I I know the sacrifices that you require of me, but I don't even know if I do those right. And I don't even know if I do those all the time. I worry that maybe sometimes that there's sins I don't even know about. And then what will happen if I die tonight, Lord, and there's sins I don't even know about? 
Are you going to condemn me for those? I think I might be a little bit, bit anxious. But the good news is, church, the Day of Atonement is not God's end-all, be-all for taking care of sins. About 1,300 years after the Day of Atonement ceremony was established, there was a baby born in the city of Bethlehem who was prophesied to be the Son of God and the Messiah who would rescue God's people. Additionally, the prophet Isaiah foretold there would be a person who would bear our griefs and carry our sorrows and be led like a sheep to its slaughters to be pierced for their transgressions, but ultimately to heal them by his wounds. This baby boy's name was Jesus. And this baby grew into the man who would fulfill this prophecy and every other prophecy that was made for him. This brings me to my second lesson today. Holy cow, that was a long first lesson. Jesus is the true goat. Now, now, if you, now if you know me, the, you know the only type of humor I have is through puns, so this was way too good to pass up. I apologize for myself. Who comes to mind when you think of the people who are the greatest of all time? Typically, this conversation, we think of athletes, we think of the sports world. If you're an NFL fan, even if you hate to admit it, it's Tom Brady. It's Tom Brady. Seven Super Bowl championships. No one has even anywhere close to that. The next two quarterbacks on the list, Joe Montana, Terry Bradshaw, they have four. Four! He has seven. What do the greatest do? Well, he might have the greatest stats in the world, especially if you look at Tom Brady's rushing stats. Run, ran for like five yards a game, maybe. But the greatest find ways to win, and he won more than anybody else. If you're a college wrestling fan, especially if you're somebody who was born in Iowa, lives in Iowa, none other than Dan Gable. Dude's a legend. And not only as a wrestler, but as a wrestling coach. So as a wrestler, Dan Gable had two NCAA titles. He had one world gold medal, and he had one Olympic gold medal at the 1972 Games, where he didn't just win. In his six, message, six matches, nobody even scored a point against him. No, not even a point. He destroyed people. It was awesome. <laughs> and then as a coach, was equally as impressive. He coached for the Hawkeyes here for 21 seasons. He led the Hawkeyes to Big Ten championships in every single season. 21 straight years. They never lost when Gable was their coach. 15 of those years, they were national champions. It's like 75%. That's crazy. Like, if you're a coach and you do that once in your life, you're like, oh my gosh, like, I can retire now. And for him, it was probably like, those six years, gosh darn it. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, we admire goats in the sports world because they are unable to do what anyone else has been able to do. We marvel at their accomplishments, and we look at them as models for how to play their, the, these, their respective sports with excellence. But in an exponentially greater way, Jesus is the true and better goat, or greatest of all time. Not because his athletic abilities surpassed the rest of the field. They probably did. But because he lived better than anyone else had ever done. 
In fact, he lived perfectly, never even making one mistake during his 33 years, roughly, on earth. Even when he was without food for over a month and tempted by Satan with, with bread, he had the discipline to say no, fixing his eyes on his father and only doing what was obedient to him, which was definitely not giving in to Satan. Additionally, the performance he put on simply living his life was jaw-dropping. Much more than throwing touchdowns and racking up pins and tech falls, he raised dead people to life. People were dead and he made them undead. No one else has done this sort of stuff. He cured every sickness. UHC could really use a guy like him. He cast out demons He caused storms to halt in their tracks, and he did this all not to bring glory to himself, but glory to God and for the good of others. Like, so just pure in his motives as well. Because he is, oh, and and the good news is not only that he lived a better life than anyone else, but but that it was his and his father's will that through himself alone, God's people would be free from their sins and dwell intimately with him forever. It was both their intention from the creation of the world that Christ would come to completely fulfill the intent and the purpose of the day of the atonement ritual. And because he is the true and better goat, he, alone, he was alone able to, uh, capable of fulfilling the roles and the stipulations of that day forever all time. Because he is the greatest of all time, he is the only qualified high priest to offer the proper sacrifice and carry out the rituals. The author of Hebrews brings this light to truth. In chapter 9, verse 11, it says this, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not this creation, he entered once and for all the holy places not by means of bloods and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing an eternal redemption. The author of Hebrews beautifully displays this truth that Jesus is the true and better high priest compared to Aaron. His blameless life qualified him alone to step behind the curtain and without a need for a cloud of this incense to shield him from the dangerous but glorious presence of God. And as the holiest high priest of all time, he offered a sacrifice infinitely more noble and glorifying to God than any other priest had done. He said, I'm not going to offer an animal. I'm going to offer myself. This demonstrates the fact that because he is the greatest of all time, he was able to be the true and better animal goat for the sin offering. He was the the unblemished He was male. He was from the tribe of Israel, fulfilling every requirement of the sacrificial goats. But like a true goat, greatest of all time, he went above and beyond. Even though he had no sins to atone for, in the greatest act of sacrificial love in history, he offered himself as the, the better sacrificial goat. Similar to the greats in the sports world who put the team on their back to win the game, Christ willingly put the team not on his back, but on his head. Having the authority of the high priest, together with the love of of God, he willingly laid his hands on his own head to transfer the sins of the world onto himself. 
And he completed the act of love, being both the sacrificial goat who was slain, as well as the exiled scapegoat that was condemned and abandoned. But unlike the goat who could only remove the sins of the people for a time, Hebrews 9 reminds us that the offering of his own blood was enough to secure for us an eternal redemption. But you may ask, can we really be sure that Christ's death is enough to take away our sins for all time? The answer is yes. Because Jesus' death was not the end of the story. Like the superstar that comes back for the championship game in the fourth quarter after suffering a seemingly game-ending injury earlier that game, after being down for three days with his team losing hope, Jesus shocks the world by stepping back onto the field. He came back to earth, appearing to over 500 people, the ultimate confirmation that we can trust that he is truly God. And because he is God, we can trust his word he gives to us in the Bible. And his Bible says this, For Christ has entered not only into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. This makes it clear that Christ's single sacrifice was sufficient and there will never again need to be another sacrifice needed to atone for the sins. Because he is the true goat, this one sacrifice was all that was, was and will ever be needed for all time. And after Christ died, he rose again. And after a short time, he ascended into heaven where it says he sat down at the right hand of God the Father, demonstrating that his work was done. And it is there that he remains today, sovereignly ro- ruling with the Father and with the Holy Spirit, over the universe according to their good pleasure and will. You might be saying, that's amazing, that's so good that God has done away with our sins forever by offering himself on the cross. But does that mean that applies to everyone? Is everyone free from their sins? Is everyone going to go to heaven? This brings us to the third and final lesson. In Christ, we are holy and can live in harmony with God. As discussed above, because of Christ's perfection, perfection, he completely and sufficiently fulfilled the rituals and the purpose of the Day of Atonement through his death and resurrection. But now, so now, instead of looking to the Old Testament law as the primary ways that we live our lives and become holy, we now look to Jesus' example and his teaching, as well as the New Testament, for how we should think and for how we should live. One way God's Word tells us Now to live is without fear of judgment because we now live by the law of the Spirit, not by the law of the flesh. In Romans 8, starting at verse 1, it says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation is good news. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us 
who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Later on in verse 9, it says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. We see that Christ in Christ, there was freedom from the old law of rituals and sacrifice because Christ condemned sin in his body on the cross. Therefore, it says we are free from believing that now following all the rules is what's going to make us holy and right before God. Rather, Christ's law of the Spirit shifts the focus from our justification or being made legally right before God to following the law perfectly, to being in Christ and having his spirit. With the spirit, even though we are not completely perfect and we still sin and there's a punishment for sin, the passage shows, that, shows us that the, having the spirit guarantees us life after death. You might say again, this is great news, but... How can, I be, how, how can I be in Christ? And how can I receive his spirit? By God's grace, he makes it simple. Admit you are a sinner and are in need of a Savior. Believe in Christ as Lord. Later in Romans, it, it, Paul tells us, if you confess uh, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Simple as that. At this moment of first faith or conversion, God does an instantaneous, miraculous work inside the believer. He gives them part of himself, his Holy Spirit. Through this, Christ inseparably unites himself to believers, which is what it means to be in Christ, as Christ is in us. Being in Christ comes with an endless list of benefits. For example, now instead of having only one place, the inner sanctuary, to meet with God, he is accessible to us everywhere and at any time. When Christ died on the cross, the curtain of the temple split down the middle. The curtain that once separated God's people from him, this foreshadowed the change from the old law to the new law, of the Spirit as a way to become holy and justified before God. Now there is no need for a tabernacle. There's no need for a curtain. There's no need for priests or sacrifices because all believers have free access to God at any time in any place because He is in you. Additionally, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can rest easy knowing that through faith, he has united us to himself through his spirit, and when we will die, he will surely take us to heaven for the room that he has prepared for us. Now, if you're not a current believer in Jesus, this doesn't seem like it applies to you, but don't worry. God is gracious and also wants to have an intimate relationship with you by giving you his spirit and this will make you holy he offers this to you and everyone if only you admit that you are a sinner and you need him as your savior don't wait accept god's gift of eternal life and live in the freedom that he offers for current believers christ alone has made us 
right before God by grace through faith. So we need to stop trying to earn salvation by the things that we do. If you're someone who has followed Christ for many years, it can be easy to forget in our hearts that we are saved by grace because it's the broken record that we hear every single Sunday. We're saved by grace through faith. Blah, blah, blah. And we, we, we tone that out. We get bored with it. And then what we do is we create our own list of things, our list of our good deeds. And in our hearts, it's as uh, and we make this list and we say, if we perfectly follow this list, then God will really be happy with me. He'll really love me. At a street level, we forget that, that Christ's work on the cross is all we need. In our hearts, we, it's like we come to God with our list of good deeds and, and our, or our Christian ministry resumes and try to impress him so that we can get on his good side. So I prepared a, a list that we might go before God and say, God, look at all these things. Look what I've done. I can't remember the last time I've missed church, God. I'm always there. I've always tried to be a nice person. I give more to the church or, or charity than most people I know. I serve at least twice a month in the community or at church. I've memorized over a hundred passages of scripture. I know a lot of your Bible. I've led over 10 people to Christ. The missional family I lead, it's really thriving, God. I, I think I've always kept the Ten Commandments, at least as, as far as I know. Or at least I'm not as bad as those people. And after reciting something like this in our hearts to God, we think God's going to give us a big smile. He's going to embrace us and say, Well done! Good and faithful servant. But I think that's where we get it wrong. I think in those moments, God looks at us with compassionate pity and would tell us something like this. Child, hand me your list. I do not love you because of what you've done. But because when I look at you, I see my son. Don't get me wrong. God wants us to do good. But he wants us to do good for his glory. And not to try to justify ourselves before him or others. On the flip side, we can forget the power of God's grace and think, ourselves, think of ourselves as functionally disqualified from his love by our mistakes. And then we break out this list, our sins and failures. And we recite them before God. We say, God, I'm not worthy of you. If only you know what I've done, you know that I can't be loved. If only you knew how abusive I was to my ex. I've been harsh to my kids. I've been to prison for my horrible crimes. I've been unfaithful to my wife. My marriage ended in divorce. My kids don't respect me. They're disobedient. I can't even manage my own household. My marriage is a wreck. I can't even keep to my stinking Bible reading plan for Lent. 
all my Lent stuff. I can't do any of that. I can't break my sin struggles. I keep looking up porn. I feel like it has so much power over me. I can't change. When we finish reading this list in our hearts, we expect God to affirm us and say, you're right. I didn't realize that. You are disqualified. I didn't realize how bad you were. But by God's grace, I think he will softly and lovingly say to us, yes, you have done wrong, and I want you to turn from your sin. But my love for you remains the same because Jesus paid all those sins for you. Don't let your sins, which were, which were cast away, wander back from the wilderness. Leave them on Christ, the true goat, who delights to carry your burdens and live in the peace and security of God's love and salvation. A couple of questions to reflect on uh, for this week. Maybe some, some things to talk to your missional families. What good deeds or things in your Christian resume do you tend to justify yourself with? What are the things that you tend to compare yourself to others as a way to justify yourself before them? Or on the flip side, what things from your past do you, con- do you tend to condemn yourself for and see yourself as disqualified from God's love? Make it your goal this week to give those over to Christ. Church, God is holy and requires us to be holy. Through faith in Christ, God makes us holy by giving us his spirit. Receive Christ into your heart and love and serve him in freedom. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful for your goodness. We thank you for your, for your grace. Like Scott said before, we, your word says that we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and you have laid the iniquity on Jesus. God, thank you for your grace to do that. You did not have to do that. You could have left us alone. We were supposed to be the goat. But you put that on your son, Jesus, because you love us so much. Thank you. Thank you for freeing us from the law that we don't have to worry it. We don't follow everything perfectly. That you won't accept us. In Christ, you will accept us because you love us. You love your son. Help us to live in the freedom of that this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.